0: Let's do it. Okay, one, two, three, clap. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Jeremy. Kick us off.
1: All right, let's do it. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Retro Time Podcast. I'm Jeremy,
0: and I'm Derek.
1: Derek, how's your Fourth of July, dude? You, um, you did you did some things patriotic people do?
0: I did nothing patriotic. Um, <laughs> didn't even wear, more blue.
1: You more wore blue? And there well, was some white you know, dots on it. Yeah, um, got a third
0: of it in there. Let's yeah, say. my face probably uh, turned red a few times, so.
1: There you go. All right. Yeah, we went, uh, we went blackberry picking, picking. Oh. some blackberries. That's nice. Where'd you go? Uh, there's this little place called McGlasson Farms mm-hmm. down, uh, down in Kentucky. Okay. Yeah, we went and picked some blackberries, and then um, I'm going to freeze them. And I'm gonna make some popsicles and some blackberry cobbler, like some real down home American things Americans do. Yeah. Or so the the internet tells me
0: that's great. I'm proud of you.
1: So I'm very excited about that. Uh, you know. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a dang old hoot. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I got a really good recipe for uh, for coconut milk blackberry popsicles.
0: What's so it?
1: that's gonna be real refreshing, Derek. Real refreshing. Mm, hot summer, summer day.
0: All right, man. So what are we talking about today, Derek? Actually, uh, that's funny you say that. I kind of wanted to, to start by telling you a little story.
1: How Tell me like a little that? story. Okay. I can't wait to hear it. I love your stories.
0: Go back in time. Can you take me back in time to a little time do-do-do,
1: do-do-do, do-do-do. All right.
0: Do-do-do. So, Here we're we in the year, let's say 1998. Okay? okay. I'm at my local video store. Okay. okay. Uh, ZM Video, let's call it, down in Louisiana.
1: You, and, is that a real place? Or are you making this? Oh, time? yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have I a whole ZM, a ZM story. Okay. Yeah, it's great. I remember movie time. Well, obviously blockbuster. Movie time turned into blockbuster. But Oh, I recently, it's totally off topic, Derek, but I, I, a, there's a documentary on, uh, I guess it's Netflix about the last blockbuster. Oh, Did yeah. Did I tell you about this? Yeah. I think I may have mentioned it last episode. Anyway. It's really interesting, and and the uh, it's crazy how Blockbuster just blew up and, and and like the licensing rights and stuff with the movies. They, anyway, they basically you know killed every mom and pop shop and made them turn into Blockbuster. It was pretty, you know, the epitome of corporate uh, evilness. But anyway,
0: yeah. go ahead. ZM-V-. Now everybody wants them back. It's hilarious. <laughs> so I was in ZM Video, let's say, and I was walking down the aisles, okay, and I see this movie, and it just jumped out at me, black and white, mm. one word. Movie? Clerks. Clerks? So I'm like, oh, I got to see this. And my friends tell me, dude, you got to see this movie. It's hilarious. Take it home, put it in. Starts off, guys grabbing his keys. They mm-hmm. start cursing and saying all kinds of funny <laughs> shit. It was great. And it was one of the funniest movies I've ever seen because i never seen one like that before. Like it was just mm-hmm. so raw and just, it, it felt like it was made like by my friends, you know? Right. And then, as I got older, you know, I started to follow the guy, director of that movie and the writer, Kevin Smith. Uh, he started to do all kinds of other things. He made movies like Mallrats and Chasing Amy. Love Mallrats. And Rats. Uh, my personal favorite, Jersey Girl. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> don't, don't don't at me. Um, no, Jersey Girl's pretty good. But, you know, he started podcasting, and actually, the Clerks 3 trailer is actually releasing right now.
1: Clerks 3?
0: Clerks 3. The trailer oh, is man. happening right now. It's released right now. That's awesome. Um, so that's exciting. But uh, one thing that blew me away was that it was really just him and his buddy Scott making this movie. Oh, two really? people, okay. two, two two people guys. made okay. this movie. He he wrote it and directed it, and Scott helped him like cut it together, and he kind of produced it, get it you know got it to uh you know be shown in like very small art style cinemas, and it got picked up by the Weinstein Company, who are just exceptional people <laughs> um and they ended up um you know basically making him famous so he owes a lot of his you know a lot of his career to that movie but it kind of made me think how could a team so small make something of such high impact to culture mm, i see where you're going with this and you know what i feel like you've had a few thoughts about this
1: maybe yeah, relating to horror. This this is—I had no idea where you were going with this, but I love it, Derek. Yeah. So I guess what you're what you're getting at here is how was a team of two, Mm -hmm. two guys making this movie Clerks? I assume at the time a lot of people were probably telling them, "No, you, you know, there's no way you could do this. It's Mm -hmm. too hard. It's too many, too many moving pieces for two people. You need a big team. You need millions of dollars. You need a giant budget, giant team." And he did it, and it was successful. And it was, uh, you know, one of the classic movies that most people of our age, at least, I don't know about younger kids, um, would probably point to as like one of their favorite movies of all time. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, you know, obviously you and I now, we we work at, at rather large, uh, at one point in time, one of the largest <laughs> industrial conglomerates in the world. Right. Um, big teams. I think our org had... We just did a little reshuffle last week or, or last month and, and at one point though our org was like a thousand software engineers. It's a lot. It's a big big team, a lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of budgets, a lot of planning, a lot of a lot of things going on. Um and it's funny because you and I have talked about this and this is I guess why you bring this up. Uh but back before I started at where we're at today, I worked at a little startup down in New Orleans called hmm. Rodolo, and Ooh. it was me, a software engineer, and a product guy, a BA business analyst. And that was it It was literally three just of the three started. of you really that was it i was the first designer we had um actually when i started it was just the ba and me <laughs> and it was the owner and the founder actually hired me uh this guy a myth and he uh was just he owned a bunch of companies and he was like you know i want to he started his own software company that he recently i think a couple of years sold for like millions of dollars um, anyway, he was like, you know what? We build software for this, these big corporations, these big giant things. But he's like, but the, the software that we're using, he's like, we could apply it to like smaller companies and just really build like very quickly. So anyway, um, we had this technique, we called it rapid app development, <laughs> hence the name Rodolo. I didn't come up with the name, by the way. It was already established when I was there, uh, but anyway, we did. We had this process where we reused, you know, a lot of like components and frameworks, and and every time we built a new piece of functionality, we always incorporated it into this new set of features that we would build. And and so, like, give you an example, you know, we we would build the database table or something, I don't know, I'm just making this up, Uh, and then some company would say, hey, you know what, we need user management, so we built user management, so the next time we had a customer, we'd say, we have user management in this database Hmm. thing, you know, and then someone says, oh, I need um, to add uh, widgets, and we'd say, all right, now we can add widgets, database tables, and user management, right, and so we would always build upon it, and every time we would, you know, pull this in, and and we had a, a framework, a base thing to kind of build with. You know, so it, it, anyway, it it was like a, a very quick, it was very fast and we were very nimble. We were able to make changes. And and it's funny, when I um, came to, to where we're at now, I was just shocked. I was blown away by how long people would say things would take. <laughs> and I was just like, wait a minute, a year to do this? Seriously? Like we would have done this at the old place with the three of us. We would have done this in, in like literally a month. Why is this going to take a year? And, you know, it, it was just, it, it blew my mind, honestly, like how fast um, that smaller team could be. Um, obviously, you know, there's way less, I don't want to call it politicking necessarily, but just lines of communication in a company like that. So three of us get together. We say, is this what we want to do? They say, yes. We say, all right, let's do it. You know, whereas in a larger comp- company, you um, you know, I've I've seen like a diagram recently. what's like uh, with the lines of communication. Like every exponent, it expo- exponentially, increases exponentially, yeah. and it gets to the point where it becomes like impossible to for everybody to communicate about everything. And so no one's on, no one is on the same page anymore. Um, and so I think that that's sort of maybe like where some of this comes from. I, I don't really know. I, I don't I, I don't know the answer. <laughs> All I know is like when I started, uh, where we're at, I was just like, "Go, oh, why is this so?" Long, there's no reason for it. Um, I also, you know, often question too like when you have a bunch of people working in the same code base trying to solve the same problem, people end up stepping on each other's toes or they they mess with something or there's conflicts or but you know, you're starting to create bugs and there's you end up with more tech debt, and so those are things that end up having to go back. Whereas one person can think about it, they build the stuff, you know, maybe that takes a little bit longer. Um, I think one thing I I always said before, I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was just like, you know more cooks in the kitchen doesn't get your dinner out faster. Mm-hmm. You know, like it It just, maybe you can add more, you can do more dinners at once, but that doesn't mean you're not for every person that every chef or every cook, you're not going to exponentially increase the speed at which you're delivering something. In fact, it might actually take longer, but you might be able to do more, but you're not going to be able to do it faster. Right. Yeah. So individual little pieces of functionality are probably going to end up taking longer as a whole. But, you are you know, as a team grows, you would be able to build more things. It just gets more messy. So I think there's probably like a trade-off there, obviously. I mean, if this was – if the answer was smaller teams, you know, so you'd have software teams of five and ten people all over the place. And that's not the case because you end up a place with thousands of people. And there's obviously a reason for that. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. That's sort of been my experience – um, I don't know if that <laughs> really <laughs> has a lot of insight, but it's just one of those things that like, I just found as I, I moved from a tiny company to a giant corporation, the yeah. speed just dramatically, dramatically decreased.
0: Did Have we ever talked about systems thinking? Edwards uh, on the
1: show specifically? I'm not yeah. sure. I mean, I know you okay. and I have.
0: But oh, we've I, talked about it before. Okay. Yeah, so that, it reminds me of the constraints that a system or an organization or a product or whatever it is puts on the team building it. The system that was in place at Rodolo seemed like it was very, very low friction. Yeah. And the system in place in a lot of these larger organizations is high, high friction, where you'd have multiple steps to get approvals to get things done. A lot of times for pretty valid reasons. There's some sensitive information, but sometimes just because I don't trust that team to do it right. You mm-hmm. know? And for me... I've found that identifying what if it's the system or if it's actually the person that that maybe they're not skilled and need training or they're, you know, do, doing something obviously wrong and we need to, you know, let them know is is like a helpful, a helpful activity.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that goes back to like the leadership in these giant teams. Right. Like yeah. when when you've got giant teams, it doesn't inherently mean that you will be slower. Mm. It just means that there's inherently more complexity in how the teams have to communicate and organize and plan.
0: Yeah.
1: So if you have a leadership team at the top that is very good at organizing all of those teams towards one strategic vision and plan, you can delegate various things and get the teams to work together in a very efficient way. It's I think the problem boils down to when there's no communication, when people don't understand what they're building, why they're building it, how the things connect. They don't get a chance to do validation for, you know... UX team, for instance, doesn't get a chance to talk to customers or users or whatever, and go do the things they need to do to create the, the artifacts they need to actually ensure they're building the right thing. You're going to end up with like people potentially building the wrong thing. It's going to take longer to fix those things, you know. So I think that's like where the main difference is, like, you know, when you're a smaller team and you make a mistake, you can pivot very quickly because it's just the, the few of you. Mm. But when you make a mistake in a larger team, it's very hard to fix something or change something quickly because everyone else may have dependencies on your thing that you're building. And so you can't just change overnight or change immediately or make a decision on the fly like you could if it was just you and a few other people. Um, And I think that might be the biggest thing is like when when you've got these large teams, the leadership is just like critical in like how they establish vision and, and control and stuff. You know, like we've talked about this before, command and control at the top very top down, you end up with, you know, just like the scenario that we're seeing in Ukraine where like Russian generals are trying to manage everything from thousand miles away, they can't and they don't know what they're doing. And if you look at like the way that like the US military works and NATO and stuff, they give control to these non-commissioned officers on the ground and they're able to make very quick split second decisions without having to wait to go back up the chain of command to ask somebody for permission to do something, right? And so they're more nimble. And they're faster. And I think that's very similar to, you know, large or obviously it's very similar. The U.S. military is huge, right? So when you give control to the teams themselves and they're able to make decisions, you know, maybe it's messy because people can make decisions and it's not as centrally planned anymore. But they can be faster. So there's certainly trade-offs there, I think, is maybe where I'm going. Um, (laughs) I've never been in the military, so I can't really speak – too much to this, but I have worked in large organizations that Sergeant Miller have a party <laughs> uh, that have a a, a very a clear chain of command. Sometimes they they work well, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're flatter, sometimes they're more structured. So, anyway, that's just something I've observed.
0: So that's interesting. The really interesting, Jeremy. The mean time to decision making. If you track that on your team, I wonder what you'd find out. How Mm -hmm. quickly can you make decisions about different types of things? Database changing, code Mm -hmm. structure changing, adding a configuration file, priorities for the project. The other thing I was thinking about, I want you to get your thoughts on this. Small teams, it's a lot harder to give a small team a lot of conflicting or even disparate priorities to go Mm -hmm. tackle all at one time. It feels more natural to do that to a large team because they're big. They can handle it. They can handle yeah. 10, 15 ideas at once. But a small team, it's just three people. Yeah. Do one thing at a time. When would when you, you think about is that well, how it where, was? Like, I,
1: I think it's you have the ability for the leadership, again, to try to manage a bunch of priorities. But they're not the ones executing. They're not the ones doing the work. The people on the ground in execution, you want to give them very tactical, very specific things to go do. mm Right? You want to give one team go build this, the other team, go build this, the other team, go build this. Make sure you're connecting and talking to them because the, the cross dependencies, the global notifications need to work, or the global search needs to work, or yeah. you know, whatever we need to reuse components and things like that. Um and, and those teams can focus on that, keeping in mind these secondary objectives in the background, right? But I think like when you if if you were to try to say like you focus on everything on the ground, even at a large team. That human is still a human, whether they work at a large corporation with a bunch of people or they work at a startup with just five, right? Mm-hmm. Your mental capacity to, <laughs> to, to manage all those priorities doesn't change just because you work at a large or small corporation. Now, the team itself can manage more because there are more people and each individual person might manage something different. And so, therefore, the larger group can manage multiple things. Um, you know, I think at a startup, for instance, like they're very laser focused on solving one problem generally, mm-hmm. right? Like we have this, we like, a, you know, just a, maybe a new startup that's creating a SaaS product. Very focused. That one thing. We do this one thing and we do this thing really well. You know, we're not going to try to build 80 products out the gate. Yeah. Right. Whereas a large corporation might have 80 projects going on, but they don't have five people working on it. hmm Right. And so I do think, though, that the difference between a startup and often large organizations is is honestly comes down to the people leading it. How much do they actually understand about software or how much were they just stakeholders that ended up in a leadership position because they knew the process really well? And I think a lot of times what ends up happening in large corporations is those stakeholders that understand the process get promoted because we assume oh well they know the process they must be they must understand it really well they're going to be able to build this thing you know correctly right yeah you know whatever it is but they don't know how to build software they don't know how to execute like that skill set is very different and what I've found in a lot of, a lot of times in large organizations is those those stakeholders end up becoming the people who are the ultimate decision makers at the top. They might not be your boss. They might not be the engineering manager or the engineering director or something, but the decision-making will often come down to them. Mm. You know, well, we have to have this new feature. Well, that feature is great, but if we go and build this today, we're not building a solid foundation so we can quickly build other things. So we need to build feature flags first. That feature flag concept is something they won't understand and comprehend because they're not a software person. I say, well, what what feature is that going to get me? How is that going to let my team work? You know, it's not. It's not at all. That's not the point. It's going to help us build new things so that your team can have stuff later faster. So, so that's where I think, like a lot of times, this this, this issue comes down, especially in big corporations, big companies, is that the decision makers aren't always the people that understand software. This isn't always true, obviously. Um, but I think that tends to be what I have witnessed, and maybe you know, maybe I'm unique, maybe I'm different. What I've seen, at least on the on the um, the startup side. Is the decision makers are not necessarily the stakeholders, but the stakeholders have influence on what we build, for sure. But they're not the ultimate decision makers in that we are going to go build this thing first. You know, that tends to be like what I've seen at least. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm unique there or not.
0: I don't think you are. In fact, my favorite sociopathic uh, CEO, um, Steve Jobs, uh, once said that, you know, companies, they start out you know if they have early success a lot of times what will happen is the people who understand the content will continue to work on the content but the people who get promoted into decision making roles are the sales and marketing people and i've started to really assess mm. what our teams which we call product teams what they what their goal really is cuz it's not to build the software it is not necessarily all the time to help build the software because they don't know how any of it works it is to sit and watch and then once it's done tell everybody about it hey we did it we built the big widget and the content gets driven out of the organization those people who build great things the great software developers the great architects they leave because their their voices aren't being heard they're not in the decision making conversations mm-hmm. i've seen it happen multiple times uh in my current job my previous job as well i find that to be a fascinating trend i do not think you're yeah. alone
1: yeah well i think like this is you know you've probably heard a lot of people talk about the three legged stool this is something that you know people talk about all the time with regards to software you've got product on one end engineering on one end Um, maybe UX, although sometimes like, honestly, I feel like almost it makes sense to include UX and and product together because, you know, how does the product team know what to build (laughs) if they don't have UX people on the team to discover what users want? (laughs) Right. Um, that, that, that seems odd to me. Um, and then I've, I've, I've even heard people say that like, you know, the, this, this stool should include a leg for something like marketing or sales, because if you can't sell this thing, what's the point of building it? Right. Mm. Um, so anyway, th- this idea, though, that there's multiple legs and you need you need them all to work together or and be, you know, equ- hold the, the same amount of weight in order to hold a person. Right. I mean, that's like really the, the, the metaphor. Um, and so in in theory, the idea would be that, like, they all have equal say in various things. Not that they all have not that it's necessarily a democracy and that we all have to vote, you know, like UX shouldn't really decide how the software architecture is built and the software team shouldn't decide, you know, what the personas say or who the users are or whatever, you know what I mean? But, but they each have uh, equal amount of influence, I guess, if nothing else. And so, you know, there's always this compromise, I guess, is where I'm going with this. There should be some compromise in that, you know, a software engineer can say this is the proper and correct way to build a foundational thing. Mm-hmm. And the UX team can say, we can't build anything until we go and we validate and we talk to users and understand the pain points and things like that. And the product team might say, but we can't build anything until we get funding and we get this other stuff and we have stakeholders sign off and whatever you know other things. Product product teams might do at, at different organizations, right? Um <clears throat> you know and, and it's not up to one person to veto the other there's a compromise there and you say well if if we have this amount of money and we know that the users are going to be doing this and we have this much time you know development team what is the best and the best thing that we could build with the time that we're given and how can we compromise together maybe that means the UX team loses a feature or maybe that means that you know the product team has to Cut funding for something, or or maybe that means the development team has has to build one thing, maybe and, and assume some tech debt or something, right? So there's a there's a there's always like this this um, this compromise, and I think the problem boils down to when one team has the upper hand and and basically dictates how the others do their job. Yeah. Right the the product team or someone come in and say, uh, UX team you don't get to go do research or development team you ha- you I don't know we picked this framework for some reason or you only have six months to build this thing you know um, I think like your point though like to Steve Jobs is uh, what he was kind of getting at was that the product team ends to be ends up being the ones that are in charge a lot of times and what's funny I, I saw a meme the other day that was you know like if you look at organizations large organizations there's always a VP of product there's always a VP of engineering, there is very rarely a designer that's in a VP role or executive role. It's maybe director if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Usually manager, and so it's already skewed at that point, right? It's, it's so from the US structure. Side. Yeah. So you know that's something that I've I've observed at least in in um, large organizations that it's never tends to be as equal as it may be in a startup because you've got three people and we can just get in a room and hash it out. Right, but when you have a a large organization and you've got a VP, two VPs, and a a manager, who's going to (laughs) win that argument? (laughs) Right, the UX team is probably going to lose if they don't have that VP representation. Generally speaking, right, unless Mm -hmm. they can sell their case really well, which hopefully they can. But it's inherently unbalanced to begin with. Right. And if you're in an organization where engineering doesn't have that VP and they just have a manager, then you're, you know, who's dictating what's going on. It's one it's one of those stools is longer than the other, stronger than the other. When you sit down, that stool is going to break.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so I think that could just also be maybe a symptom of just this large versus small n- number of people in that uh, a startup versus a large organization where, again, I can go sit in a room with a few people and, and we're all essentially equal, even if one's a founder, one's a you know UX lead or whatever, versus you know a big organization where you have all these like historic political kind of things to
0: think about. Yeah, it's interesting too. Like when you when you think about why in some teams they don't want the software people talking to the business people. You don't speak business. I speak business. So you can't talk mm-hmm. to the business people. You're going to confuse them with all of your techie words and all of your you know <laughs> stuff like that. And software is complicated in order to understand how to build software you have to really be able to abstract the concepts of what you're doing at a very very simple level if you're good at it that's what you can do simplifying concepts for business people is just another level of that you know i've seen great conversation between software people and business people because business people have questions that the products people can't answer so they're like i'll have to get back to you on that i'll talk to my software people why didn't you bring them I'd rather talk to them. They know what the hell's going on. And that's just, I just find that fascinating that we've created these structures where there's huge knowledge gaps right where the knowledge needs to be. Fascinating.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, this is, again, like going back to our old team that we used to work on. I think one of the reasons why we were able to achieve what we were able to achieve in a relatively short amount of time was we I felt like they let us sort of function as our own little mini startup in this large organization. Right. We we didn't have a lot of outside influence. You know, we had budgets set by somebody else and that, you know, that's fair. But we got to decide what features we wanted to build. We had a program manager who was really good at like including everybody on the team and whenever we made decisions, UX was there, engineering leaders were there, and we were always together making decisions together and you know, we we compromised quite a bit, you know. We didn't ever get a lot of the stuff that I wanted to build, <laughs> you know, a lot of I'm sure a lot of the engineers didn't get to build some of the stuff they wanted to build, but we were able to kind of pivot quickly and do our own thing and decide. Uh, on our own um, I, I think that's sort of one of those things like when we went on research trips you know we took engineers to the shops mm-hmm. we took product managers to the shops it wasn't like UX was trying to do it all and own this thing you know I don't want to say like everybody is a UX designer but everybody should care about the user experience you know mm-hmm. that isn't your job but it, you should care about it you should care about how the experience a user has you even took Everybody Will care about to the shop. <laughs> Left his ass there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, I mean, that's, like, um, you know, one of the things, like, uh, that I think is really important a lot of teams don't do. Yeah. You know, some teams, if you say, like, we're going on a research trip, let's bring a developer. They're like, why? Why would you do that? What's funny is we did a survey on our team recently and sent about personas and and the value of like building personas and how engineers wanted to interpret this data or get this data and and have it disperse them. And we got feedback from the engineers was like, I don't I don't need to care about personas. I don't care about personas. And I'm just like, what? What do you mean? Like, you don't care about the users. You don't care about the people using the thing you're building. Why are you doing it? What is the point? You know, and I find that strange that people would say that, but I also kind of blame their leadership. (laughs) You know, it's Mm. like they're not trying to instill this idea that you're building this tool for someone to do something, and it needs to be good. Yeah. It needs to work. Um, You can't just hack your way through this because you're trying to finish your user story by the end of the sprint. It needs to be quite high quality, and there's a reason for that, right? And so, anyway... um, I don't know. That's sort of a tangent. But I, I think it's important, though, for, like, everybody to kind of work together to understand all these things, you know. It's important for the UX team to understand the business priorities. It's important for the engineering team to understand the business priorities, right? Because that might influence what you recommend. If you understand that, like, the priority, I, mean, I think we talked about this before, but if, like, the business is going to go bankrupt in six months because they don't ship a thing, are you guys going to recommend a thing that's going to take two years to build? Right? Are you going to recommend something that'll take six months to build, Mm -hmm. even if it's kind of hacky? So you have to understand the business priorities, right? And 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 I think it's the same for everybody. Everybody. It goes back to the empathy, right? For everybody. Like, um, you know, you should understand everything about everything as much as you possibly can, you know. And this maybe goes to the middle managers more than the people doing the grunt work, the the people writing the stories, or people doing the actual work, maybe that's not as important and maybe more important for their managers to sort of understand this so they can direct them and keep them focused on executing. But, you know, maybe that's a management philosophy might differ from person to person. But anyway, I find that that kind of stuff just tends to get really hard at the larger organizations, which is tends to be, I think at least, why they end up being a lot slower and ultimately more expensive.
0: Fascinating point. I couldn't agree more. I think... The one thing I'd like to leave you with is a paradox that I've found in large organizations recently. When you have a large organization, sometimes they're working on things that require a lot of people. And so you look at it and you're like, okay, they're efficient. They just need a lot of people because they're building 10 different products. And each one has, you know, like they're structured and makes sense. But sometimes the system is so complicated that nobody is effective at doing their job And it creates this paradox where – or this problem Mm. where I know that I'm overwhelmed and I'm not doing my job well. I just noticed you aren't doing your job well. But I can't say anything because then you'll point out that I'm not doing my job well. And then everybody will know I'm not doing my job well. It creates this (laughs) like – it creates this culture of like avoiding embarrassment. Um, And it's it's because of – the structure of the system, the organization and the products that are that are being built or the projects that are being worked on. I don't know if that, yeah. I thought there'd be a weird paradox there.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And and I think there's a lot of correlations here too to like startups and scaling, right? And yeah. I'm not an entrepreneur, so I can't really speak to scaling. But I I do know I've read read stories and listened to podcasts and stuff where founders talk about how the company failed because we scaled too fast mm-hmm. and we got too big too fast. Um, and so I think there's also some of this here as well, in that, again, the people leading these teams, hiring engineers, they don't always understand how to scale an engineering team. And so if you have people that are in charge that are not efficient at, at deciding these things or understand them well enough to make a, a really good decision, you're going to end up hiring, you know. I don't know 100 developers because you just need more butts and seats when what you actually need are pe- more maybe more more specialized people right or or you need people who maybe can can hire their own teams because they can then focus on something so you maybe hire 10 managers and those 10 managers are then in charge of hiring special specialized skill sets for the individual things they need to do right so anyway that, that's just sort of something that I I think maybe there's a correlation here between startups and scaling and then ultimately large organizations that tend to just you know kind of bumble their way through growing a lot of times. This isn't always true, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but as these as these organizations grow, they get less efficient. And I remember uh, you and I were talking about this years ago. When we had this team. I think we had four pods of what eight people, nine people each, ten people, something like that. We had about 40 engineers and they wanted us to build twice as much stuff. so they will well, obviously we need four we need eight pods. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what I think we said was like you know it, doubling the number of engineers is not going to make us double f- the f- speed you know because it's going to there's going to be learning curves going to be end, like all this stuff and a lot of them I think were even like in Europe so it was like well if we do that just keep in mind like there's going to be a language barrier there's going to be a learning curve there's going to be a cultural barrier there's going to be all these things time barrier um, it, doubling the teams is not going to double efficiency um, and so I think that's a lot of times what ends up happening too you just say oh well, we need more people we need twice the stuff mm-hmm. ahead, twice the people makes sense and then you don't you know you end up being maybe 50% more efficient or or something like that so I think that's absolutely true that paradox you're talking about makes a lot of sense interesting
0: anyway Jeremy thank you so much for the discussion today I really <laughs> appreciate it
1: it's my pleasure Derek um, I don't know that I really answered any questions maybe just complained about stuff <laughs> but I was maybe, thinking maybe dropped a little
0: insights in there I don't know there what? was there was a there was some positive stuff in there I think that <laughs> I was uh, I was thinking back to we interviewed someone um, I'll have to go back in the show notes to find out who it was. But we interviewed someone and they said, I listened to a few of your episodes. They're grim or something like that. You guys are pretty cynical. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Dagna. Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh,
1: She, uh, we complain a lot. And, you know, so what's the upside
0: of having a big organization? Um, Just try not to fuck it up. I don't know. (laughs)
1: No, dude. I mean, there's there's so many positives. I mean, this is why, again, like yeah. all the stuff that we're talking about, I think is are not meant to be complaining. It's meant to just be pitfalls to try to be aware of and avoid. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I will never go back to a startup, to be honest, one, because I doubt they pay me. And I don't. I don't even think I'd get the benefits. <laughs> and uh, you know, they probably wouldn't pay for travel. I mean, this is again when I go back and I think about the startup. I didn't get to do research. I didn't get to travel. I didn't get to talk to people. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to do the things that we really should have done to create high quality, you know, software. And and when I say that we were fast and efficient, that doesn't always mean that we were building the right stuff. <laughs> So I don't I don't want to imply that like, you know, as a UX designer, I was doing the most amazing work of my life because I don't think I was. And I I honestly don't think I I think I skipped a lot of steps because we were trying to be fast. So, you know, there's all again, there's these trade offs here. It's not it's not to say that being in a startup is great. It was fast paced, a lot of light, a lot of nights, a lot of weekends. You know, it was a lot of working, working over hours and things. Um, so, you know, working at a big company affords a lot of benefits that I we've talked about this in the past, so I don't, we don't need to rehash it. But um, this is not to sound complaining or, or doom and gloom for large organizations, because I, I do believe there are a lot of benefits to those those big companies. You hear that? Chris? that I think outweigh the, the, yeah. the startups, in my mind, at least. Yeah.
0: Just make sure Chris hears that. <laughs> he hears that. There's no big deal. Yeah, No big deal. Um, anyway. All right. all right. Well, Jeremy, it's been a delight. Love talking to right. you. I heard that.
1: All right, y'all. Well, check us out on retrotimepodcast.com. Get yourself some stickers, retrotimepodcast.com slash stickers. Don't forget, y'all, leave us a five-star review, and Derek and I will get you a song at some point in the future. Get
0: in that <laughs> backlog now.
1: <laughs> yeah. So do that, and uh, you'll be hearing from us soon, y'all.
0: Yeah, man. You remember... Right. uh I heard this story that when Star Wars released, they 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 commissioned like Kenner toys to make the 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 toys, and mm-hmm. they couldn't make them in time for the release of the movie, so they they gave out for like Christmas, and so they gave out boxes with little cardboard cutouts and said a kind of thing that says you'll get your you'll get your toys like in June. <laughs>
1: you imagine like if you did that with software you're like well you paid for it Uh, we'll get it to you you'll get
0: your software and it probably takes more effort to fucking build a box
1: you know what's funny that's like that reminds me a lot of like kickstarter that's basically kickstarter it is kind of (laughs)
0: kickstarter yeah I'm not a big kickstarter guy but you never know Um, I like patreon I give a lot of patreon and in fact I'm kidding we don't have a patreon but maybe we will one day one Um, day who knows
1: Yeah, I don't know that we have enough content for that but yeah all right. We'll man. see one day. When we start getting these songs, maybe, maybe we'll make that a Patreon. <laughs> that
0: would be the bonus. All right, dude. Well, are, y'all. until next time, I'm out. Take it easy. Um, I just wanted to tell you, um, before we get started, I was uh, celebrating something my kids did, and I was clapping for them. They built this awesome... As one does? Yeah, right? You're just trying to celebrate them. They built this awesome fort. And I walked out of there and I was clapping like this. And Catherine says, is that how you clap? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) You don't clap like that? And she goes, no. You clap like that. And I was like, why are you clapping? She, She basically said, why are you clapping like a big sissy? Yeah. And I said, screw off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To hell with you, wife.
0: Yeah. I clap I want to I clap. Actually, I don't actually say that. I don't really clap. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> That's good because I
0: thought it was weird. <laughs>